Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more, so that we may fear less, is a quote by the Polish-born French scientist Marie Curie who is known for her work on radioactivity and a twice winner of the Nobel Prize in two different fields, physics and chemistry. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today, a leading figure in nuclear research who challenges the very fabric of our societal preconceptions on nuclear energy in the public discourse on sustainable and low-carbon energy. Our guest today is Dr. Addie Patterson former Chief Executive Officer of ANSTO, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. ANSTO has over 1,300 staff serving 6,000 researchers annually that provides nuclear medicine locally and internationally as a core mandate. Addy is now the founder and principal of Sieva Consulting. Prior to leading ANSTO, Addy held senior leadership positions at the Pebble Bed Modular Reactor Company, the South African Government's Department of Science and Technology, and the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research in South Africa. Addy currently serves on the boards of HB11 Energy and Advanced Cell Isotopes. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, Please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in South Africa, Finland, and the Pacific Islands, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners Board and Executive Search Firm. As a leading figure in nuclear research and innovation, Addy challenges our preconceived notions on nuclear power and exposes the ignorance shown in certain sections of Australian leadership. He advocates for re-evaluation of Australia's stance on the energy source and its untapped potential so we can look after not only future generations, but the forgotten Australians. From wind turbines, solar panels, green hydrogen, to nuclear reactors and advanced batteries, Addy highlights the true costs of these much-talked-about alternatives. Finally, he encourages us to have an informed and meaningful dialogue that transcends fear and embraces the transformative potential it holds for the future, which can enable Australia to be a nucleus for nuclear advancements. So sit back and enjoy. A witch that lived under my bed. Addy, welcome to the show. It's good to be here today. I haven't had too many guests, Addy, who have been court-martialed 
and on their way to prison. Do you mind elaborating on this? This happened when I lived in South Africa. Back in the day in South Africa, we had uh, compulsory conscription for military service during the apartheid era. Mm-hmm. And I decided uh, when I was at school that I wasn't going to join the military. I decided to be a, a pacifist and I didn't believe in, in war. And then over time, uh, with uh, the onset of sort of the, the whole apartheid uh, era, warfare internally and externally to the country, I decided I could never serve. And so I went through all of my university career, got my PhD. We were allowed to do that to avoid military service. But then came the day when I had to acknowledge a call-up and I refused. They tracked, they tracked you down, did they? Uh, well, I'd, I'd always stayed in touch with them. Yep. Um, but that was the time that I told them I wasn't prepared to serve. And uh, uh, Kath and I were already married. And so that was the day that they came and fetched me from my home and uh, took me to... The, uh, the the sort of military base in, in Weinberg in South Africa and charged me. They let me go uh, until the trial and I went up to Pretoria for the trial. At the trial, I was convicted of failing to serve in the South African Defence Force uh, and I was given a four-month sentence. Now, that itself was a, a bit of a miracle because at the time, people were getting two-year sentences. Now, it turned out that the colonel in charge of the court-martial only had four months to serve in the military before he retired. And he kind of felt that he didn't want to support people going to jail for not going to the military. So he gave me a sentence that was just as long as um, his residual time in the military. Yeah, but you weren't going to be just normally serving. You were pushing back and Further still, weren't I you? wasn't going to serve at all. So the next thing that happened was I was expecting to be transferred to detention barracks, uh, which is a military jail. And I had indicated to them that if I was put in the military jail, I wouldn't eat the food or drink the water. And that, I think, had them worried. And so they decided on sentencing me to transfer my sentence to the civilian jurisdiction and put me in a civilian jail. That, it turned out, required a Supreme Court decision. And so the military court had to send that to the Supreme Court of South Africa. Yeah, right. But the colonel who sentenced me also started the sentence on the same day that I was sentenced. And my sentence expired before I ever got to jail. So that was a bit of a miracle, really. So Mm. I had a criminal record. Um, So when I came to Australia uh, with my criminal record, I used to sit in a chair. Every time I got off an aeroplane, I used to have to tick the box on the form. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so it was quite funny coming to be interviewed uh, for the job and to accept the job in Australia uh, to my first sort of serious journey into Australia was sitting in a chair and having to explain myself to the people at the border that I was coming to apply for a job at Anstow. So you're a man of conviction. Were you actually seriously not going to eat and not going to drink? Absolutely right, yeah. To the uh, day you passed away? Exactly, yeah. It, it, it was a tough decision to take, but, you know, Kath and I thought through it. Really? Um, yep. And it, we, we just felt that we had to send a signal about apartheid and about, in my case, universal pacifism. What year was this? Oh, so this was um, in uh, 1984, no, no, a little bit before that. Yep, no, 1984, literally okay. the, the year of, of 1984. 
But basically, you know, there were many people, I think, in the military who did not want to have people who didn't want to serve. There was a strong political movement called the End Conscription Campaign. I was not directly associated with them. I was an individual who acted in my own right. But many people refused to serve, uh, but very few people refused to go to detention barracks. Uh, Many people went into exile. Friends, family, stand by you. What? what um, um, this well, is a Kat, big, big, big call from your part of the world. Yeah, uh, Kath and I took the decision. We had lots of. Uh, there were support groups around, and and people of similar convictions. I, I was strongly linked um, into into church groups, and uh, you know, people like Desmond Tutu in the Anglican Church, and so on. These were people who were very supportive. But at the same time, there were people who we knew and loved in the community who couldn't support what I was doing. So it was a complex time. Well, that's one battle. You've got another battle now, haven't you not? Well, it's, it, it is interesting. Um, we're now actually in a democratic com- country, Australia, and um, Kath and I have both become citizens. But we find in, in my f- uh, mind and feeling a very similar but different kind of curious refusal to acknowledge fundamental things about how the universe is. And, and one of those is that, that you know nuclear energy used in countries around the world should not be banned in democratic countries, in my view. We should be free to have the choices, and we should make those choices made on all the things that are important to us, the future of the climate, safety, economics, and so on. And there are many partner countries around the world of Australia, and I think countries like France and Japan and Sweden and Finland, non-nuclear countries like Norway, which are thinking about building nuclear, even somewhat anti-nuclear countries like Denmark that want to have uh, nuclear batteries on ships to tie up to ports in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And it's against the law even to look for uranium in New South Wales, where we're sitting today. Even exploration for uranium is banned in New South Wales. So it seems to me that at certain times, people out of fear have banned things in the hope they don't have to think about them anymore. That is no different to the spirit of apartheid. It is absolutely similar in my view. Because if we can ban something like nuclear energy, maybe later on we'll think of banning other things. And if there just happens to be a public consensus and politicians who support it, uh, it's a slippery slope. So how did you get into nuclear? Well, I, I got into to, to nuclear when I was young. Um, I was given a book uh, when I was uh, five years old, and uh, it was a book about atomic energy. It's, I've still got it. In fact, it's it's on my desk at home. Five years old. Yep, yep. Okay. So it was it was kind of a children's book. Okay. And on the last page of the book, it's it's got a little narrative about one day that electricity will be made by atoms, and it'll be too cheap to meter. Now, one of the things that is true is that nuclear energy country uh, countries have got cheaper electricity than non-nuclear electric countries. People don't realize that. They think it's expensive. Yep. It's expensive to build, but it, it gives you cheap electricity out of, out of the end of the, the machine. And so I read that, uh, that, that book, and it, it kind of stimulated me always to ask questions about, about energy mm-hmm. and to think about where we got our energy from. And so right from a very young age, I've been very passionate about nuclear Mum and dad from the science background? Well, my, my dad wasn't much in, in our lives, but my mum was a psychiatrist. So she studied medicine before the Second World War. 
She was a remarkable woman. She she was one of the first three women in South Africa to study medicine at the University of Witwatersrand, and she came top of her class. So she was a remarkable person. So she always inspired uh, both my brother and I to really think a, a lot about you know how the world works and how things happen. And obviously, she was a leader right through her life in terms of women in the workplace and so on. I can just recall discussing with her when I was about 11 years old, the fact that she was in a partnership with a male psychiatrist, and he was paid 55% of the takings of the practice, and she got 45% because she was a woman. That made me into a salary activist for all of my life for women's rights in the workplace. Yep. And so I've been very passionate about um, yeah, equity and justice in the workplace is really, really important as well. And actually being prepared to think. Yeah, I, I think it's crucial that anybody involved in science, engineering, and technology has to bring a kind of synthesis, a, a whole of world synthesis as to what sort of worlds do we want to live in? What sort of societies do we want to have? And for me, low carbon energy is important, but low carbon always on reliable electricity is even more important. And so, you know, just bringing it back home to New South Wales, um, watching, you know, the what I call the fields of dreams, the panels going out into regional rural fields. Mm -hmm. And the- There's lots of them. Uh, yeah. And the, you know, the, the ripping up of, of uh, forested hillsides to, particularly in Queensland at the moment, to, to put in the wind turbines is just a, a, a shocking attack on the environment. It, it, is, it is completely against all rational thinking about what we need. And, you know, people uh, think- Hold on, hold on. What are you saying? Aren't we supposed to be supporting green? Well, I, you know, I, people are worried about, you know, birds flying into wind turbines. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think bats are really important. People, people don't think about bats. Bats get killed by wind turbine blades as well. And bats do things at night and they hunt for different insects and are flying during the day. And then the poor old insects also get beaten up by these things. So you think if you're on the top of a ridge- where there have been winds that have been uh, going over those those hilltops for generations and generations. Did we really do the environmental studies to know what's going to happen to the bird migrations, for example? We know already from the work in, in Europe that the migrations from the um, southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere have been disrupted by the Spanish and Italian wind turbines, and they're now going around further around. Uh, they've changed the migration pathways right? of the birds that fly between Africa and, and Europe. Yeah, absolutely. So how are you an expert? And so, maybe, sort of, maybe sort of give the audience a bit of a flavor of yeah. your background. So my background um, was in, uh, in engineering, mm -hmm. and so I did my PhD um, in engineering at UCT was actually um, working in the field of, of clay chemistry, surface chemistry. Yep. I then went to the University of Leeds and did a postdoc there. And that's where I became involved in the energy debate. I met people who were involved in, in developing um, all sorts of uh, different types of materials uh, for all the different types of applications. And for the first time, I realized that uh, we might be working at the materials level, but I wanted to get into the systems level. So when I came back to South Africa, I became involved in the CSIR, and there there was a battery group. 
I was very involved in developing high-temperature batteries, the so-called Zebra battery, a sodium chloride high-temperature battery, developing some of the ceramic materials for that. And we had a lithium battery group as well. And within a few years, I became involved in running the whole of the Materials Institute, about 260 people, including the battery group. Right. And we sold lithium battery patents to the Japanese in the 1990s. I've been involved in lithium battery technology since the 1990s. But while I was involved in running that energy institute, we looked at uh, wind maps for the eastern part of South Africa. Mm -hmm. I was very involved uh, in thinking about a combination of um, wind turbines to pump water back up the hill oh, yeah. uh, and hydro to run downhill, so a mixture of wind turbines and hydro to get uh, pumped hydro storage. That particular place we looked at was in the Eastern Cape. Uh, obviously, South Africa had an operating nuclear plant, the Kuburg plant, the first one in, in Africa. Uh, they're now building also in Egypt. And I happened in to do a materials inspection of the Kuburg plant in 1984 before it was switched on. Okay. Uh, and that was fascinating for me to see essentially a sort of generation one and a half reactor, pressurized water reactor being built um, in South Africa, a sort of a combination of a Siemens and French design. Mm -hmm. And it just struck me when I started to try to understand why people were building these plants this was a profound solution, particularly to a place like Cape Town where there's no coal nearby. It's a very flat part of the country apart from a few hills here and there. And so Cape Town today actually has got the Kuburg plant, which still operates on the one side of the peninsula, and it's got pumped hydro on the other side of the peninsula. So during the day when they are generating power at Kuburg, they pump the water back up the hill. Yeah, okay. Uh, on the other side, and then at night, uh, they run the water back down the hill to provide low-cost electricity at night. And to me, it seemed that was a perfect combination of two different traditions, if you will, uh, the hydro tradition and the, and the nuclear tradition. So in a sense, one of the things that I've learned in this journey is that nuclear is a partner to all the other form forms of energy. It's always on, but it can load follow. So what does that mean? That means that if you have got a particular sunny day and the wind's blowing quite hard and you're getting a lot of your electrons from solar and wind, you can dial down the reactor and you can keep everything operating. So what we used to call base load, but which we now call load following, is particularly useful thing for nuclear to do, uh, and it can do it really, really easily. In fact, the nuclear reactors in France load follow all of the time. And and uh, as the need for electricity goes up and down, those reactors are turning up and down for that beautiful fleet of reactors. And that means that you've got options. So nuclear is not just about reliable always on power. It's reliable always on power with optionality. And the cost of electricity is always about optionality. So on an average day when the sun is shining, the electrons coming off solar panels are cheaper than nuclear. Are they really? Yep. You can get really cheap electrons off, off solar panels. However, wind uh, wind turbines are, are still quite expensive. It sort of match, uh, match nuclear for price. But overall in the mix, when you add the length of the grid back in, if you don't have those chunky, reliable sources of energy, you end up building really big grids. The big problem we got in New South Wales is we're going to do massive grid extension 
to take it to the wind and the solar farms that we're building in regional rural New South Wales. 40 cents in the dollar of your cost of electricity is the cost of your grid. If you double the size of your grid to get the same number of electrons into your house, your electricity is going to be more expensive. And so cheap solar and moderately expensive wind adds together to much more expensive electricity. And this is the bit that I think our politicians finesse or don't know. Mm -hmm. AEMO certainly knows, the Australian energy market operator. Um, Are they coming out and saying it? I don't think that they are allowed to say it. Yeah, they're fairly politically They are politically sensitive. controlled bodies. Yeah. Um, their CEO happens to be a passionate panels person, if I could call him that. Yep. So the fact that there is sort of a an intellectual ban in AEMO and a de facto ban in Australia means that there is no real conversation, except in small rooms among quite a lot of people and academics who have uh, – written papers about the grid, published them in academic journals. Professor Steve Wilson, for example, um, up at, at UQ, there's work that's been done in the States that shows absolutely clearly, it is unequivocally true that when you take nuclear and you add it into a grid that is high wind and high solar, it reduces the cost of electricity. So if the academic literature says that and are political dominantly masters, a, a few non-masters uh, involved, and other... Uh, well, vote, uh, vote grabbers. Yep, yep. Uh, are saying it's too expensive and it takes too long. I've got an interesting example. Finland. So Finland had a hotly contested uh, build of a nuclear power plant. It's one of those EPRs from France that have taken quite a long time to build. So what was the status before Finland went down this path? So they had uh, had a bit of nuclear in, in the past and they'd had a, uh, a nuclear plant which was coming to the end of life and they were going increasingly for wind and solar and they've got some hydro up in the north. But in a cold place like Finland, you have the fundamental problem that you need more than just electrons. You need district heating and you need uh, heat for, for uh, factories, for industry and so on. And you don't get that out of low heat sources like wind and solar. Right. Okay. So also Finland, a lot of dark during the winter too, I guess. It's it's pretty dark. And by the time you get up in the north, you know, in the north of, of Finland, it's 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 not dark just for uh, uh, you know, ten hours a day. About 18, it's it's, it's, 19, it's, it's 20. dark for weeks. Yeah. Right? That's right. It yeah. goes fully dark beneath the uh, above the, the Arctic Circle. It's yeah. dark all the time. Yep. So Finland uh, took a decision to go back to nuclear, and they uh, built this, this EPR plant. They had a different contract structure to the ones that were being built in France. It was expensive, and it was late. And then they switched it on, and when they switched it on, the cost of electricity in Finland went down by two-thirds. Now, this is what AEMO will not tell us, and perhaps our ministers don't know is it's not the cost of the plant. It is the reliability and quality of the electrons that determines the cost of electricity. And by the time you put a nuclear power plant at an anchor point in the grid that is stabilizing everything and holding everything together, you don't have to extend your grid inappropriately, expensive. And because you've got that beautiful 50 hertz signal coming out, 
very, very clean power that is produced by a spinning machine, you get very, very clean electricity. That improves the quality of your industrial usage. And in the case of that plant, it also provides process heat for industry. And then, of course, because it's Finland, they take the low-grade process heat and they pump it through the pavements and melt all the ice on it so you don't have to scrape the ice off the pavements. They use it for district heating as well. So so that's a sort of a three-tier whammy for that nuclear power plant. Now, in Australia, you, you can do the same thing with uh, nuclear power plants as we could use them for district cooling. So we could use them to help with the air conditioning loads during very hot days. Mm. But again, uh, there is not a single engineering study or any group of engineers anywhere in this country studying any of these options for Australia because you couldn't get a decent grant from any of the funding agencies. Because funding agencies- Hold on, hold on. You said CSIRO is in South Africa. Yeah. There's a group here called the CSIRO. Yeah. We're hearing about policy, policy, policy- all day long. Isn't this been funded at all? So CSIRO is functionally anti-nuclear. So they support the process of- Based on what? Based on science? uh, Or based on a- a, a, Definitely not science and definitely not economics. Uh, So they they run a report for the government every year called the GenCost report, which which I call the GenCon report, which is a report that they produce every year, which is 10 spreadsheets, which an external consultancy company puts together. Spreadsheets are, you know, hysterically funny to anybody who's spent any time doing energy modeling. And yet that's the basis on which our government um, every year reinforces its commitment to anti-nuclear because the GenCost report, of, of course, yeah, up till recently took the really expensive plant in Finland as an example of, you know, it takes too long, costs too much. But they never report, so GenCost means generation cost. They never report on the cost of the electricity to the final consumer. So it's like we're running this experiment in our heads where we look at the uh, the generation cost. We won't take the best places in the world like South Korea, for example, which runs a whole bunch of reactors and has got uh, electricity costs that are already half Australia's electricity cost, all based on nuclear energy in South Korea, for example. Or Japan, where even post-Fukushima, they're switching on reactors again and saying we need those reactors because we want the quality electricity that comes out of them. No, they don't look at that. They look at the cost of the uh, uh, the plant in, in the US, uh, the new scale plant, which is a small modular reactor, not a, a gigawatt scale reactor, and which took a long time to uh, finish the, the whole process of getting ready for the construction and which has never been built. So instead of using real life, this is what nuclear does in real grid never, state. Never got built for what reason? Political? I, I, my own view is that the is that the NRC killed them with paperwork, the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So we know that the direct cost of the licensing of that re, of that reactor, the money that went out of New Scale into the Nuclear Re- Regulatory Commission, was half a billion dollars of regulatory cost. That's a lot of money. Now most rational regulators don't operate that way. My sort of acronym for NRC is never reach consensus. If they want to stop something, they'll stop it. And 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 you know, frankly, I would say in the United States, it's too difficult to build economic nu- uh, nuclear, even with some of these reactors that they built in South Korea or that they're building in Japan. 
or the ones that they recommissioning in the Ukraine, for example, which are Russian reactors. All of those are third generation or third generation plus designs, inherently safe um, or close to inherently safe. They work uh, and functionally, uh, they provide you with low cost reliable electricity, uh, mainly in places where you can freeze to death. Now in sunny countries, the thesis that we can do the same thing with solar panels is great until you try to maintain manufacturing. South, South Australia, is losing um, high-precision manufacturing and has lost high-precision manufacturing because of the poor quality of their, their inputs. Yeah, but are we, aren't we supposed to be bringing in or creating a manufacturing environment down there with, ironically, the likes of AUKUS, et cetera, which is nuclear-powered? Yeah. I, I, I know for a fact that companies have left us, the South Australia and didn't stop in Sydney or Queensland and went all the way back to the east coast of the United States to do manufacturing because of the reliability of South Australian electrons. Let's just go back a little bit. You're the ex-CEO mm. of an organization which was across this, mm. ENSTO. Yeah. To those out there who don't know what ENSTO was, what was it? And what was it? What were some of the achievements during your time as yeah. CEO? Uh, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organization is the home of knowledge and the knowledge base of all nuclear science and technology activities in Australia. And ANSTO has got uh, two jewels in the crown. Uh, jewel number one, the OPAL reactor, the Open Pool Australian Light Water Reactor. It's an Argentinian-designed reactor, which uh, was built um, – in uh, in the uh, first decade of the 1990s, it was really starting up, and in its it's a, a initial kind of commissioning phase. When I got a call uh, to say, did I want to apply for the job at Ansto? So I competed for the job at Ansto. So when you were in South Africa, I was in South Africa at the time yeah. in the Pebble Bend. Oh, is this from, this from Ziggy? His old days. Ziggy Switkowski was the chair of the board at that time, and he looked after all of the panels and so on. And so I came out to Australia for the first time for the interviews. And it, it was really interesting. I was put through the hoops. I had a series of interviews with different people. Uh, they were very interested in what I thought about um, about nuclear power and various other things. They were very interested to, to know what I, I knew about nuclear in general and so on. And then I managed to get the job. So competitively, I won that job and came in 2009, early 2009, to take up that gig. And at the time, the Opal reactor was what I would say in a, in, a, in a kind of hot commissioning phase. A lot of the functions that were planned for the reactor hadn't started. Uh, we had done a little bit of, of um, science with neutron scattering, and we had a few things going, but there were some challenges. We, we really had to um, work out how to create a, a savvy workforce uh, that could understand that we had to run the reactor according to a schedule because we had real clients, nuclear medicine, for example, mm -hmm. um, producing the generators uh, that are used in hospitals to do diagnostic nuclear medicine. Yep. And there were also opportunities to develop new, techni uh, new technologies for therapeutic nuclear medicine. And I was particularly interested in 
a group in Germany that was working on lutetium-177, which we didn't have in the country. Which means what? Which is it's an isotope of lutetium that can be used to directly put into patients and attack a cancer. Uh, and and it's a therapy. It's not just a diagnosis, right? So it's, you, you, you put a little molecule onto the lutetium that knows where the cancer is. It all goes and sits in a clump around the cancer and goes, bashes the cancer, and that, that's the way that you treat people. So really my dream for the OPA reactor was that we would make it the most productive research reactor in the world for researchers coming to visit to use the facilities. And we would uh, make our business activities at Ansto, which when I got there were making a loss. We were generating about $14 million a year, but at a loss to become a proper uh, profit-generating, full accounting uh, baseline for, for Ansto. So that has happened. Uh, we, you know, Ansto now, I haven't looked at the recent figures, but um, from the time we were generating that, that $40 million till the time I left Ansto, by the time I left, we were generating about $115 million a year with a 40% margin. So we were actually putting money back into Ansto to do other things. Mm-hmm. We also uh, got involved fairly early on in my time at, at Ansto with the Australian synchrotron. People don't know what synchrotrons are, but if you think of, of a um, big ring about the size of a football field with electrons spinning around close to the speed of light, that's what the Australian synchrotron is down in Melbourne. You, you put in a few electrons and you spin them around at high speed and then if you open a little door in the, in the accelerator and you let that, uh, that light out, you can put it into different instruments. And so around the ring of the synchrotron, you can have all sorts of different scientific instruments. And uh, the really clever scientists who run these instruments can do a huge amount of science. And that science is not just for the people who are crowding around the machines, but you have competitions for people to come and use the machines to do the best science. Yeah, right. Same with the neutrons coming out of the reactor. So the neutron scattering is the same as the, the kind of the X-ray scattering that comes out of So it was logical when they were having some funding problems uh, to get involved in trying to secure funding for the Australian synchrotron. And I worked with a team of people across all of the universities and other groups who were involved in the synchrotron and with the federal government to secure 10 years of predictable funding for the people coming to visit the synchrotron and for the full operating cost of the synchrotron, $520 million over 10 years. That was probably one of the most exciting things that I was able to be involved in uh, during my time at Ansto because instead of it being kind of a a bun fight and things working with string and ceiling wax, we suddenly could get the communities uh, to work together. So in a way, my job wasn't to build new things, but to make things that had been built work well. And that's always, I think, something that's valuable in a, in a small population country that's got high science ambitions to have some of the best equipment in the world. And do we? Yes, we do. Uh, the neutron scattering hall, the so-called um, uh, neutron scattering hall at the edge of the Opal reactor, about 40% of the scientists who use that facility come from overseas. They compete to come all the way to Australia uh, to use that facility. And the Australian synchrotron literally 
does so much research, which is is critically important from biology and environmental um, sciences through physics and engineering. It's an essential facility. Can't do without it. Eddie, I was reading something about silicon chips, airplanes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what's that? Silicon is a is a is a really uh, interesting uh, material because silicon is 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 the basis of so much of what we do. When you are flying aircraft at high altitude, cosmic rays are bombarding that aircraft, and all of the microelectronics in in those aircraft have to therefore have very very high precision electronics. So the silicon that goes into those aircraft is starts out its life as as an individual uh, single crystal of silicon that is is made in Sweden, and those little ingots of silicon cylinders are sent all the way here to Australia to the Opal reactor, and they put into the Opal reactor for a period of time where the neutrons go through that silicon and slightly change its conv- conductivity but in a very predictable way. So the highest precision electronics in the world that we use in uh, things that go very fast through the night and in things like aeroplanes are based on that, that high precision electronics and those, those, uh, those ingots go all the way back to Sweden and they made into the best high precision electronics in the world. And so we, we do a lot of things on this planet that could not be done without the Opal reactor. And we pause there a little bit because we were talking about Adelaide. In the bigger picture then, you've got expertise across the world of energy. Why aren't we having a national discussion? Just talked about the CSIRO. We just talked a little bit about politics. Let's open that up. You're a man who's seen the world. Of the top G20, where do we sit in terms of what, the, what you're seeing, Addy, in terms of nuclear power and the benefits that it's providing those countries? Nearly every G20 country has nuclear power. The only one that is still in the G20 but won't be for much longer is Germany because they're going backwards out of the G20 quite fast. I don't believe that you can have a low-carbon uh, modern manufacturing industry that does not have nuclear power or hydro as the low carbon source if you care about reliable sources of electricity and you care about low carbon. Mm-hmm. So we've got a dilemma in Australia because we have got hydro, but we've got very limited hydro. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got some disasters with it at the moment. I didn't want to particularly mention Snowy Hydro too, which I understand to be a pumped hydro uh, scheme. But I did describe the pumped hydro scheme in Cape Town, okay. uh, where they pump the water back up the hill there. Uh, the distance from the bottom of the hill to the dam at the top, if you look at it across linear space, is yep. a couple of hundred meters. Okay. Snowy Hydro 2 is a 30-kilometer tunnel uh, with a very shallow gradient. Frictional forces on the pipes, the water turning turbines, Snowy Hydro any way that you cost it, very large offshore turbines, any way that you cost them, are more expensive than modern nuclear power being built in a number of countries around the world. So we're not just in a space where we're choosing other options, we're choosing poorer, more environmentally damaging options 
that are more expensive. And so the idea that it costs too much takes too long is simply not true. Uh, it's all a matter of political will and careful design of the regulator so that the regulator is empowered to regulate the physics and the engineering and is not in any way a political actor. It's also got to be a regulator who regulates the design and engineering and construction as well as in the operations of, of, of any nuclear power plants and does not rely on the weight of the paperwork, which is what the NRC does in, in the United States. So you've got to have a smart regulator. I like the, the South Korean regulator. I think they um, have got a, a very good approach. In fact, because uh, South Korea is a strategic partner, they would be a very logical uh, partner for large plants, um, 1,400 megawatt plants. They've just built four of those in the United Arab Emirates. Are the South Koreans did? South Korean plant. Yeah, okay. Uh, the Emirates, a very careful process, internationally validated process, signed off by the United States to get into the nuclear game. And from the time they started off wanting to build the reactors to what is effectively now the first connection to the grid, 11 years. It does not take that long, okay? My view is that if we were looking at our partners, for example, in South Korea and the engineering companies that were involved in the uh, design and build in, in, in the Emirates, and we were looking at using some of our industrial capabilities, which we still have, mm -hmm. uh, we could look at similar timescales, but it would all be predicated on two things, lifting all of the nuclear bans in every jurisdiction so that we don't have a chilling effect on anybody who wants to come and set up shop here. And then I think the second thing that we would probably need uh, is a commitment and, and intent from both sides of politics and probably also um, what I call the rational Greens, uh, the Greens who actually want to have an engineering future as opposed to just a, a generally green future. And there are many of them, by the way. I think there are many uh, rational Greens who have got you know, deep and abiding interest in the environment who would love to see modern nuclear power built in Australia. So if we're going to have modern nuclear power built in Australia, Eddie, and if you were given the magic wand, yeah. just what does that look like? How many stations do we need? Yeah, yeah. Where do we base them? Can we use current yeah. coal-fired power stations to start mm. with or mm. not? Is that mm. just a myth? Can you help us sort of fill in the yeah. gaps here? Yeah. So I, I think that the you've got a couple of principles. The first one is can you avoid grid extension? Grid extension is, is politically unpalatable. And so can you put the nuclear power plants where there is a source of cooling? You can do dry cooling, by the way, of, of nuclear plants. There's a bit of a penalty on how much you can produce. You, you have a bit of a sacrifice of, of productivity. Uh, but there are dry-cooled nuclear plants around the world. Uh, but assuming we go for um, water-based water cooling of these reactors, and they're water reactors, which is what I'd recommend, you would retrofit them onto brown coal sites and black coal sites uh, in Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. Yeah, okay. And I think that that would do the bulk of the job. Now, I'm not going to do… Bulk of the job for the country? Yeah. Well, certainly for the East Coast. Okay. By the time you get to a place like South Australia 
and you get to what I call the diesel grid. I mean, most Aussies don't know about what I call the diesel grid. The diesel grid is most people who need electrons in the north of the country that are not connected to the grid. And uh, there are very large numbers of Australians who fall into that category, including many Indigenous Australians. They suffer the fact that, you know, there's the diesel grid taking tankers from Queensland right across the top end. The diesel grid is a national embarrassment. It is a shocking national embarrassment. They are dirty. They um, are not really what we want to be doing in, in the country. And we could replace those diesel grid so these are like the local generators, is it? Yeah, yeah. So and the truck just pulls out, and I get the I get the diesel off, and it sits in my yard yep. until the generator runs it's, out. It's, it's exactly the same sort of thing, but they make them bigger, right? Okay. So so they they've got a, a generator on the on the corner of the town, right? And they've got a big tank on the side of it, yep. and this uh, tanker arrives and fills it up. Yep. All of the local people, as soon as they you know, far enough out of that town, there's no value in extending the grid. It's cheaper to get your own diesel generator. So they're all living on diesel, right? Right. But they've forgotten Australians, uh, and and yet I think they are the most important of all Australians because if we're not providing clean, low-carbon electricity to the least of us, why should we give it to the big end of town? And that's the problem with the big end of town. You know, the people – I'm not going to mention suburbs because I've got friends in some of them – but they're, they're places in, 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 in Australia – where the there is amplifiers of the hatred of nuclear in these particular constituencies who've never been to Northern Australia as I've been to Northern Australia. They've never met with communities as I've met with communities in Northern Australia. And so they don't know how transformational, how transformational um, electricity can be. And this is what we saw in South Africa when the townships – uh, which had been running on car batteries, right? Which were, yeah, people were nicking electrons off the poles, right? Putting them into car battery chargers and running them in little carriers back into the houses in, in shanty towns. And in the transition out of apartheid, all of those shanty towns, because it was too expensive just to build new housing straight away, were electrified. So suddenly people had the electric cable arriving at the shanty town and these poles with wires stringing out and you would, the first thing that you had is you went from candles and paraffin lamps and poor education to lights on better education. Kids could study at night. It's a fundamental transformation. The way that I think about Northern Australia is a different analog because it's a lower population density, and, but it is still a moral hazard to kind of solve your problem with batteries in your backyard when you've got Northern Australia, which doesn't have batteries in its backyard, right? And so I think of Northern Australia as a place where we could develop a local industry, not an importation of knowledge industry, where places like University of New South Wales, where places like uh, QUT, University of Queensland, Monash, these great universities – RMIT is, is like a hidden gem, right? Just amazing knowledge base. Instead of being sort of quasi-anti-nuclear, it could be turned into micro-reactor battery powerhouses for the country. They could develop the technologies. They could look at developing um, the, you know, the pebble bed technology that I worked in in South Africa. The triso fuel has been redeveloped four or five times around the world. It's an inherently safe fuel. It can never fail 
beautiful, beautiful. Uh, it, that was one of the great privileges in South Africa was seeing us in three to five years go from knowing what a pebble bed technology looked like to redeveloping triso fuel in that very short period of time from the beginning. Of course, now you know they've they've got a an operating uh, pebble bed reactor operating in China, and, uh, so that technology is now fully commercial and available. So why don't we have a small reactor? Westinghouse has got the Evinci reactor. This is pretty much you know coming out. It's a factory fabricated reactor. The uh, heating part of the reactor is completely separate from the reactor part. You can just pull the reactor out, plug a new one in. The heating part is not connected with pipes in any way. So you can bring in the new nuclear battery, plug it in. These Evinci uh, reactors could operate all over these territories. But wh- why is that not our dream? Fear. It's fear. It's fear. So which, you, you're going to have to break that. Yeah. And, and, and then I think, the the problem with fear is it's often associated with profound ignorance. Profound ignorance is ignorance you choose to have. Well, it's not every day of the week I like I get out of bed and want to research nuclear physics either. So I understand where you're coming from, but I was brought up to believe that. Why take the risk just in case? Yeah, that's a really important question. Is if you do a risk analysis, mm. you always have to look at the downside risk of not doing it. Mm. And this is in Australia what we haven't done with nuclear. So if we take these two sorts of nuclear that I'm talking about now, let's take perhaps the Korean uh, gigawatt-scale reactors or the slightly smaller versions that Westinghouse has built and so on, and we take these, these nuclear batteries and we say we do not take that risk. We will still be on the diesel grid in 25 years' time. We will not replace the nuclear with the, the diesel grid with batteries because the batteries only last uh, a maximum of 10 to 12 years and you'd be replacing them all of the time and they're not green and then the solar panels or the the wind turbines have pretty short lives as well so we would be locking in a cash flow model of the future expense of, ele- of energy that to an outside observer would say, well, why are you doing this when you had this alternative? My challenge to to all of the Australian governments, to the engineering departments in Australia, to the people who really, really do believe in batteries, like I still do, I think batteries are important. I think that um, as President Obama said, uh, and I was actually in the room in Washington when he made this speech, um, He was a Democratic president who wanted nuclear looked at again in the United States, uh, a remarkable man in in my view. And I remember him giving a speech about the need for clean energy. This was shortly after he was elected president. And he was asked a a question um, uh, by, I think it was somebody from the Washington Post, President Obama, you know, and he listed all of them, including nuclear, you know, which of these would you choose? And, you know, he looked at that person and he said, you know, I would choose all of the above. All of the above. That became my energy mantra from that day because here was a person who was brought up in the tradition of not being a supporter of nuclear. He deeply cared about his country and was 
came out of a part of the country which had energy poverty and still to today in parts of the US has, has desperate energy poverty. And as an authentic voice of people coming out of a tradition of dispossession, his simple answer for a country at the time, uh, perhaps as complex uh, as Australia is from, from the point of view of our politics, mm-hmm. found a simple answer to the energy conundrum, all of the above. I wish we had that courage in Australia. I wish from the left, from the right, from the center, from the people in the defense force who are going to be building nuclear submarines, from the people running small businesses in, uh, in, in Sydney, from the people doing small-scale manufacturing and doing it tough because of the reliability of electrons. They're just desperately waiting for someone to say all of the above. I think there was something just recently, 67 to 69% of Australians on a recent poll yeah. came back and said, I would consider nuclear energy. Yeah. That's a change. Well, Will's current uh, poll, you know, the uh, the young nuclear for Australia leader who's, who's now just going into his final year at school, uh, his current poll is 67% for nuclear that he's running at the moment. And I just find it remarkable that somebody of his talents has identified something that's so difficult for camera to get its head around. Um, I think the polling has been consistent. In fact, as our electrons are becoming more expensive, the desire for people who intuitively, um, viscerally might just react to nuclear because they've lived that all the time, they're doing their desk research. They've had a look at what's going on in the world. To be at the bottom corner of the Pacific, kind of a low population uh, democracy in a complicated area, I look at the Pacific Islands, I can see barge-based nuclear batteries from Russia and China. What, hold it, hold it. What does that mean? I think that's how they'll get their electricity. So what, what, a, a, boat, uh, a boat turns out and parks on, on, on uh, the beach or something? Yeah, a boat-based nuclear reactor. They're developing similar technology in Denmark, even though Denmark's anti-nuclear. They want to put nuclear reactors on boats um, and plug and play in Pacific Islands and, and so on. And if you're a Pacific Island and you're on the diesel grid, or the diesel pond, as I call it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've got a problem. Uh, and you're not going to solve it with batteries. And, you know, we accept so many people from the Pacific Islands to uh, work part-time in our economy. Yep. You know, uh, migrant workers uh, was a feature of life in South Africa. We try to change that to give people stability and permanent jobs. But, you know, if you don't have a lot of electrons at home, it's really difficult to, to move up the value chain. And so... My own view is that we owe it to the Pacific Islands for Australia to be an early adopter of ship-based nuclear power, not just to defend ourselves against uh, people we think might not like us, uh, but also to create a peaceful Pacific. Yeah. So, Eddie, just in simplistic terms for everyone out there, the beauty of nuclear is what? Clean and consistent? So what's the, the key things I should think about nuclear versus others? So the first thing is it meets the test of hydro. It's clean. It's not like hydro weather dependent. So it's, it, it balances hydro because it becomes independent of weather. So it is completely independent of weather. The most beautiful thing about nuclear, particularly these uh, modern reactors, is that the fuel cycle is closed. We have got waste management solutions 
that are t- trusted, well-established and proven, and we know that you can use final repositories underground where you take the spent fuel and put them into those repositories and they will be safely underground for as long as you want them to be. The most important years are the first 300 years. Do a little bit of a thought experiment. Will the panels have all rotted away in 300 years? Mostly it takes about the same time to rot a solar panel back into the earth, but with toxic chemicals from the solar panels. It takes about the same time to let nature digest a wind turbine blade. Also, not very good for the environment. Nuclear is already cost-effective and cheaper than both offshore wind and all the other alternatives with a closed fuel cycle. Why would we not choose the safest, most reliable, only closed fuel cycle in all of the options that we have available to us because of irrational bans taken decades ago? All right, irrational. Are they irrational? They're completely irrational because the the laws of engineering and reason say that you're safe and you can make it safe. And there are democratic governments all over the world that are busy adopting nuclear, 40 countries in the queue at the International Atomic Energy Agency. So in 20 years' time, when I would estimate maybe 10 or 15 of those countries are already constructing nuclear power, they'll be down the cost curve. They will be refined engineering. They will be knocking them off production lines in a safe and predictable way, the same way that we made automobiles safe. They used to kill lots of people. Now we, we've we made them safe. Same as high-speed trains. They don't fall off the rails anymore, etc. We know how to do safety in complex engineering worlds. All right, so you're the nuclear expert. What happened at Fukushima then? Fukushima is a really interesting case study. Fukushima uh, Daiichi number one in Japanese. It's the first nuclear power plant uh, built. Uh, They were GE reactors. Many people don't know this, but on the day that that um, tsunami got over the tsunami wall and flooded the basement, switched off the diesels, and led to the meltdown of those reactors, General Electric was still the design authority. They had never handed over the design authority to Japan. The owner of the reactors was the civil service union of the Japanese government. There was no independent nuclear reactor regulator in Japan. Yeah, right. So what happened at Fukushima was a tragedy because all of the new reactors that were being built there at the same time, the backup diesels from the new safety cases, not the 1980 safety cases, were already on the hill above Fukushima. Can you believe this? They had not taken the diesels out of the basement. When they were building the new reactors and had said it's not safe to have them in the basement, there was no loop that was closed in the operators of those plants to say, hang on, we have got... Uh, the diesels in the basement, and we should put them on the hill. If they had done that, Fukushima wouldn't have happened. The trainee engineers at Fukushima had looked at potential tsunamis and had determined that the seawall in the little port at Fukushima um, Daiichi was too low and that they needed to double the height of the wall 
in order to prevent an inundation from a tsunami of the scale that happened on that day. So internal engineering documents in Fukushima showed clearly that they knew about the tsunami risk and they knew about the diesels in the basement risk and they had not acted. I believe that Japan has learned their lesson. They are switching on reactors again, but they now have a decent independent regulator. If Japan had had a decent independent regulator and was properly connected into the safety infrastructure across the world, the Nuclear Energy Agency, the International Atomic Energy Agency, if there had been proper benchmarking studies in the body called WANO, which was the Nuclear Operators Organization, ironically based in Japan, I don't believe that Fukushima would ever have happened in the way that it did. I must say that my, my heart still goes out to the communities who were disrupted by that action. This was not something that they could even have anticipated. I think it's incumbent on all nuclear operators to know about all of the envelopes of worst case things that can happen with your reactor and how you react to that and how you make it safe uh, in a timely fashion. Uh, that's the nuclear safety environment, by the way, that we have at Lucas Heights and under the control of the Australian um, regulator, Arpanza. And in fact, when I was at Lucas Heights, uh, we used to do the annual exercises, whole government exercises, to test what we could do to look at certain events that might happen uh, in the ANSTO setting, not normally associated with the reactor, but with naughty people and so on. Yep, um, terrorists, et cetera. Yep, yep. yep. So – it was my desire when, when I was operating Anstar, and I know that Sean Jenkinson and, and the board and the Sean's the current uh, CEO who worked with me from the second year that I was at, at Anstow, are absolutely passionate about the safety and the security of that facility. Uh, they continuously reflect on it, they test it and they evaluate it, and they benchmark it against the best facilities in the world. So we can be in, encouraged about the uh, the safety and security and safeguards envelope. Uh, safeguards is the control of fuel uh, envelope at, at, at Anstow. However, we can be equally sure uh, that there is no predictable way that we will get quality of life electrons and quality of economy electrons out of dilute intermittent resources plus batteries. So we've got to design a designer future which is designed to fail. My hope is that the departments in Canberra, the engineering departments in our university, have the courage to take on this level at the issue of the design and operation of our grid, that we get independent oversight or reviews of AEMO, for example, so that uh, an energy market operator should not be able to design the market that it operates in. If you're operating the market, there should be an independent body which determines the source of electricity that goes into that market. So, I would I would have an uh, I would have an electric power authority established at the senior levels of government, uh, absolutely independent. Yes. Does it exist? That exists other parts of the world, like France, absolutely. Sweden. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So we we've got a we've got you know a, a, a renewables fund which which funds renewable projects. Mm. Why don't we just make it uh, generally available to anybody who wants to provide? High quality, low carbon electrons. You know, so we've the instrument is there. You just change five words in the act, and we we're ready to go. Well, you have to change the people giving the money away as well. The mental block then for that for this country to get down that path. 
Are we associating nuclear energy or nuclear science with nuclear weapons too much? Look, I, I think you have to have a really good uh, barrier between those two things. There are so many people in the world, uh, including myself, who are absolutely passionate about nuclear energy, who actually dedicate time and resources to catching naughty nuclear people. I mean, one of the nice things about nuclear is that people are stealing materials or if people are diverting resources to uh, naughty nuclear projects or dysfunctional nuclear projects, they're quite easy to find. Physics is your friend, okay? And in fact, uh, we we have historically been able to look, for example, at at uh, uh, the patterns of of, of atmospheric uh, tests of of nuclear weapons to know what different countries are doing and so on. So, on the non proliferation side, Australia should continue to lead as it does uh, with the non proliferation office uh, safeguards and non proliferation office, which is based in Department of Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. Worked very closely with uh, Rob Floyd, who headed that up in Australia and then led that internationally for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so Australia's shown great leadership in that whole area. That's pretty good. You can find just about anything that happens above ground. And then with the new um, uh, detectors, uh, we can detect any underground tes- testing of nuclear weapons anywhere in the world pretty pretty efficiently by triangulating uh, those signals that propagate through the geology. So. Non-proliferation is already a strong track record for Australia. We'd be even more credible if we had a closed nuclear fuel cycle with a waste repository because then we could say, here at home, we've got all the other pieces of the puzzle and we're best in class in the world in this game. So even stepping up a non-proliferation world would be beneficial to have nuclear power at home. And managing the waste, I, you know, I was led to believe that's going to take yeah. a thousand years to dissipate. Yeah. Is that right? Well, yeah. what's, what's the story behind all this? Yeah. Um, and, and how much are we talking? Is it yeah. miles so, and miles and miles you're going to be having? Or what are we talking, Addy? So you're in my family. I suspect people can see that glass yeah. of water. Yep. You're in my family for the whole of our lives. Uh, if we use modern nuclear power, yep. the waste generated by our two families would fit into that glass. That's it. For all all of them, for all their lives. It's reprocessed, put into glass, put underground. It's put into a glass uh, which cannot be leached by any known underground forces, and then it's put into another layer of canister, another layer of canister, cement jacket put around it. You put it into an underground uh, repository, and then you can fill up that repository, and then you can decide uh, whether you want to leave the door open or closed. My suggestion is you keep you know, a reasonably well-sealed door openable, and you can go and inspect that for the next 300 years. After 300 years, you're back to background levels of radiation. So you know, we, we use the word uh, poisonous uh, about uh, nuclear. If you, in, if you ingest lots of chemicals, they're, they're poisonous. Mm. Nuclear, we use all the time. Uh, We use decaying uh, nuclear isotopes to treat cancers. So in a sense, for a few seconds, then when they're destroying the cancers- MRIs, et cetera, as well, aren't they? So MRI is is rattling hydrogen atoms in your brain. It's it's also something that happens in the the nucleus of a hydrogen atom, magnetic resonance. So it's- it's, it's, the hydrogen uh, atom is, is is magnetic. It's a little magnet. And so you MRI is also a nuclear technique. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't for the nucleus of the hydrogen atom. Accelerators around the world are used to, to make nuclear medicines. Uh, we've, we've 
had you know bigger accelerators in in Australia. They they run now by other people other than Ansto. So all of these technologies are well understood and well characterized. The amount of waste is radioactive, and that means that the atoms that that have radiation coming out of them eventually decay. So they can decay. So the nucleus can decay by throwing out an helium, an, a helium atom. Uh, that's called an alpha decay. Or it can have a beta decay. It spits out an electron. So it's quite funny to think of the nucleus having an electron in it, but it, it decides that it wants to be a proton and an electron spits out the electron and then, then the proton's left behind. So nuclear waste uh, is the nuclei of atoms which you can put into a glass which doesn't break down under radiation that glass contains all of those nuclei which is then put in all of these other containers how's it going to escape whereas wind turbine blades fiberglass breakdown of the toxic polymers that are used to make it sf6 in the uh, in the top of every wind turbine, or there, there was until I haven't looked at wind turbines recently. I don't know whether they managed to sulfur hexafluoride. Look it up. It's one of the most carcinogenic chemicals on the planet. It's in the top of every wind turbine. What happens at the end of life if you haven't had to have a decommissioning fund and you don't take those down properly and some guy chucks that into a hole in the ground? So Every energy form has got its wastes. The only one that is uh, responsible globally and has got laws controlling how that waste is deployed and, and looked after is nuclear. So, in fact, when it comes to waste, I think nuclear takes the moral high ground. The volumes are tiny. The benefits are massively greater uh, than the waste. And it's fully controlled. And because it obeys the laws of physics, it's always deterministic. You're listening to the No Limitations podcast, Brought to you by Blenheim Partners. Blenheim Partners is an international board and executive search firm working with chairs, directors, CEOs and senior executives on their most critical people choices. For more information, visit BlenheimPartners.com. What's your overall view then and maybe some numbers on renewables and what, we're, what we've been told mm. and what we should be really thinking about? What I like about renewables, because you're a greenie by background, eh? Yeah, look, I've I've always been interested in. It. I, I mean, you know, when when uh, I I was very interested in in solar panels, uh, and in fact, when I was at the CSR in South Africa, uh, water pumping is a was a massive issue in regional and rural communities, and we developed a a, a kind of a water pumping station, which was a, a water pump that was integrated with a solar panel and a battery. And these were designed to then be taken out into regional and rural communities where they were using old petrol pumps and stuff like that to pump the water back up the hill and to replace it with those technologies. And to me, that that made a lot of sense. That, that technology was uh, commercialized. It was taken out into a number of communities and so on. Eventually, thankfully, we got more robust solutions and, and things happening. So I think that the, the great benefit of photovoltaic um, energy is if you don't have other alternatives and you've got a place where you need intermittent energy that is based on sunlight, and if you need it for 24-hour periods, you can then back that up with batteries. I don't like backing it up with, with the diesel gen sets. I think that's a bad idea. We've got lots of little islands scattered around Australia, which you've got solar panels and little wind turbines. 
but if you look at the you look at the performance data, it's always the diesel that's doing the heavy lifting. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that's a good way to con yourself. You know, you've got this really green solution, but actually it's not. So are we being misinformed? I think we are. I think we are systematically misinformed because we say that, you know, we've got the, the maximum amount of renewables that we can have on that island. The fact that it's only working 25% of the time is a misdirection in my view. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think we should be informed. Uh, in fact, I think it would be really nice if every single project that has been funded by government funds, and there are many, many hundreds of those yeah. uh, that have got these little facilities, we should be able to track those in real time as to how they're going. And then we could get some performance statistics and we could look at them and say, can we learn from that? Because where, where we can do it quickly and efficiently, it's going to be quicker than nuclear. I'd go for it. So I'm I'm actually for the appropriate use of um, intermittent renewable energy. But I think when the panels that are on our roofs in southern Sydney, and in fact right across western Sydney and all the way up the coast, when those come to end of life, I would hope that we've got small modular reactor in those those coastal communities and people can then make an economic choice of whether they should be their own power supplier or not. It would be better to get the electrons from a a small modular plant that's just up the road. So we've got a country which builds its a lot of its growth in the economy on immigration. Yeah. So we're going to have more people yep. to give more energy to. Mm. I'm sure you've knocked on the doors of Canberra. They may be listening, but they're not acting. And what are we going to do? In my experience, there is a, it's a little bit like the seven dwarves, you know. When you're very young and you learn about the seven dwarves and you know their names and you now are grown up and nobody tells you that was a fairy tale, you might still sing it to yourself at night. The renewable energy narrative is an adult fairy tale. Come on, yeah. It is written for people who wake up at night fearing nuclear and it can send them back to sleep. It calms them down. It lulls them back to sleep. And because... Powerful nursery rhyme then. The irrational fear of nuclear is exactly the same. You know, when I was when I was five and a half and uh, quite a disturbed five and a half year old kid, had all sorts of irrational fears as five and a half. I believe there was a witch lived under my bed. Okay. This was after my brother and I moved into separate rooms. He was slightly older than me, and I was in my own bedroom for the first time in my life. So what lived under your bed? Uh, a witch. A witch. A, a witch oh, lived okay. under my bed. Yeah, right. And so I got a wound on the back of my head because I was frightened to tell my mum that I was frightened of the witch. So I worked on a plan, and I took the old cord of my dressing gown, and I put it over the hook. Uh, on the back of the door and I worked out that if I stood on the bed and swung out I could get all the way through the door and shut the door before the witch came out from under the bed and got me and so one night uh, I was frightened and I took my little rope and I swung on the uh, on the rope uh, and the rope broke and I hit my head on the windowsill, the back of my head, and I've still got the scar to this day on the back of my head of my irrational fear of witches. Later on, when my mum and I talked to her, she was a psychiatrist, and we worked through that uh, childhood fear, 
we realize it's better to talk about your fears and to have someone who's more adult, more informed, and more engaged with reality to explain things to you and not to swing on hooks uh, in an arbitrary way and hurt your head. It is my humble opinion that the Australian federal government and many state governments Mm -hmm. um, essentially believe that nuclear is a witch under the bed. They are designing a system for us which is based on a cord of not very reliable rope and a hook, uh, which we could call a power station or a grid connection, which is not going to get us through the journey to the future. It's a great sadness to me that we could be in such a state. But having, uh, in my youth, had a really wise mum explain to me uh, in a rational way using the laws of physics, science and technology, why it was a bad idea to rely on an intermittent rope that was swinging arbitrarily for a short period of time. Let's call it a wind turbine. Yep. Uh, Because it was night, the solar panel wouldn't have been working. Don't put your trust in something that in the cold light of day you say, why did we do that? Why did we do it for so long? Why do we have that irrational fear? But who's driving it? Who's driving the nursery rhyme that it's been built at every day of the week through the press, through the through some form of social media? It's nonstop, Artie. Yeah, well it's 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 lounge rooms in high net worth suburbs of Sydney, Melbourne. Uh, Adelaide, it's 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 an adult version of of what because if you if yeah, but it's you, not just Australia, it's, it's so so many countries have changed their mind. So I, I would say, interestingly, the one hemisphere is changing. Yeah, yeah, the ones that love it the most are uh, what I would call the the people who have uh, most embraced deconstruction and reimagination of a society that you can kind of make up. Uh, I would say, in inverted commas, theologically from the ground up, so you can make up your own reality. We've got lots of resources. We're very smart people. I think there are some boundary uh, conditions in everything that we do. Yep. My particular skill is in the in the area of of energy. Yep. And and I think there's certain things that you can't make up. You can't make up an energy system that fits this fairy tale that is made up out of wind plus solar plus batteries plus a little bit of hydro. And frankly, even the hydro is based on the idea that tunneling technology is cheap and drilling through soft conglomerate rock. I mean, the, the, the irony of the, of the rock collapse in, in the Snowy Hydro Project is not that rocks fell on the top of the, of the tunneling machine. They fell out from beneath it. Right. Okay. That's a pretty difficult thing to achieve. Yeah, right, okay. If we keep continuing down this path, Eddie, where are we going to be? Based on all the under- – you're, you're the expert in energy here. Mm, where mm. are we going to be? I, I, th- I think we certainly will fully deindustrialize for anything that is based on the 50 hertz sine wave that comes out of the power supply. I think that already the credibility of the country uh, with our allies, and I'm thinking particularly of the UK and the US yeah. – I can't imagine what happens in in the small rooms uh, when they talk about a country that wants nuclear submarines and wants, you know, to create a workforce of 8,000 people to support them on land. Mm. 
but which it will be against the law to put what I call a test and evaluation reactor onshore in Australia. Couldn't do that. Right. It would be against the law. If it's in the back of a boat, I think if they decided to pull a cable from from one of our, our nuclear submarines, perhaps in the basin WA and provide the base with some spare electrons, we'd be breaking the law and you'd have to put all the people in the submarine in jail. That is what I understand to be the official status of our law at the moment in, in Australia. So we're living with a, a kind of postmodern nightmare uh, of self-deceit at such a profound level. It, it leads me to continue to be an activist. I, I always try to use reason. I always try to stay on the, the kind of the sane and sensible and fact-based uh, side of it. But I'm increasingly using satire a little bit to kind of describe the people who, who want these things. I'll never get angry enough to do other than anything except uh, be satirical. But I, I do feel a serious moral moral hazard. I mean, it it is difficult to be, it's difficult to be an Aussie who wants the best for all Aussies in a country that has got what I would call a fascist ban. It's indistinguishable from from Hitler and Mussolini, and they might think that they are got a greater moral status than those two dictators. I think not. It's a hard thing to say. But I think that anybody who bans something that is safely used by our allies is part of the defense architecture of our own nation, but doesn't allow the average citizen to get the safe benefits from that on land. Looks to me like they've crossed that line into irrational and indefensible politics. Hmm. So not just in energy, we're actually on the vertical play for industry. We're actually sitting on uranium. Yep. What are we sitting on? How much? Or oh, are, we, are we the number one in the world? Or where, yeah. where is that all? So, so Australia already um, used to produce 40% of the uranium that was used in the current generation in nuclear reactors at Olympic Dam and a, a number of other mines. We had the, the three or four mines policy, depending on how you counted them. Olympic Dam still produces a lot of uranium, turns it into yellow cake, puts it in a rail car, ships it out. Um, so we export it? We do. We still export it. Um, we're down to, I think we're down to about 20%. So one kilogram in five of peaceful uses nuclear energy uranium oxide comes from Australian soil. However, in the great state of New South Wales where we're sitting, if we tripped over a lump of uranium-bearing rock and hit it with a hammer to call ourselves explorers, we would break the law. Yeah, right. You cannot uh, prospect for it. All along where the Flinders Ranges of South Australia join New South Wales along that range of mountains, yes. there will be beautiful lenses of uranium that you can extract using water treatment technology. You don't even have to have a big mine going underground with holes in the ground. You put a pipe into the ground. You find the lens of uranium. You digest it with uh, uh, an acid or an alkali bring it up and use water treatment technology to extract the uranium. You put it into buckets and you put it on ships and you send it away. We already did that for many years at Four Mile in Australia. This is a technology that was developed by General Atomics uh, in the United States, very, very uh, competent uh, body, and they owned that mine actually. So we've got a long tradition of using 
low environmental impact uh, technologies to mine uranium. Then when you, you think, okay, maybe we can run out of uranium, but you've still got thorium. So there's a very strong thorium reactor tradition in Australia, people very passionate about thorium reactors. Thorium's got some advantages and disadvantages. Um, you don't have to enrich thorium fuel, for example. Uh, you can use natural thorium and, and it's kind of got a process that works in the reactor to, to build the nuclear fuel. So, you know, even if we didn't do uranium, we why don't we just practice? Why don't we have a go and see if we can get a decent thorium loop going? Work out if we can, can do the thing practically. You can start in a lab at a university, work out if we can get the chemistry to work. You can then make a circuit in a in a site uh, which is well controlled, Syro or somebody else. But we've chosen not to do that. We've chosen to walk away from the fuel cycle and not even exploit the uranium for countries that want to be nuclear companies. We've got Silex on the corner of Anstow, uh, laser enrichment technology, developed interestingly in South Africa and Australia, and which uh, they are going to commercialize in the United States, I hope, in the next decade. So it was invented in Australia and in South Africa. It'll be commercialized in the United States. Why are we not commercializing it here? Our own homegrown technology based on our own intellectual property 49% owned by Cameco, a uranium company, which owns Westinghouse now mm-hmm. uh, from Canada. I've, I've had the privilege of visiting the headquarters of uh, Cameco in Saskatchewan many years ago. Amazing company, amazing company. They've gone up the value chain and uh, they own 49% of Silex. They will commercialize that technology probably in the United States first. As lasers get cheaper, I'm involved in laser fusion technology in this country. Fortunately, that's uh, not banned at the moment. We probably couldn't ever build any plants here, but we can do the laser work here in the country. Lasers are amazing. I mean, we've seen how they've come down in cost. We've seen how they fix our eyes and so on. High energy lasers are coming down in cost really, really fast. And at a certain point in time, you can use those lasers to separate the uh, non-active uh, part of uranium from the radioactive part of uranium just by using a little pulse of light. The one with the uh, that's radioactive jumps one way, the other one jumps the other way. You use that to do enrichment. That technology is an Aussie technology. It's available to us now. You could not develop that technology beyond doing it at lab scale five grams i think they can do in the country because it's against the law and so it will be commercialized uh, globally so synroc uh, was one that we actually could do synroc was invented uh, by ted ringwood in uh, uh, in in canberra at the university there and the technology was worked on for years uh, in labs in 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 australia when Ziggy appointed me, we we had a pact from day one that I was either going to close the Synroc uh, research and say it wasn't commercial, or we would build the world's first Synroc plant. The world's first Synroc plant has been built. It is designed to take the waste from nuclear medicine production. And so the nuclear medicine production waste that is generated on the Lucas Heights site, we've closed that part of the waste cycle It'll go into Synroc, where it is locked up geologically for all time in a synthetic rock. That was one of the great privileges of being at Anstow, was to to take the lab work, 
with a bunch of awesome engineers, uh, young people who just were very passionate about doing this, to design and build the first production scale Synroc plant in the world, which exists and is being finally commissioned at the Lucas Heights as we speak. So that's, that was good fun. If you look back as a CEO and as a leader, if I'm a young budding scientist or engineer mm. um, growing up in Australia, want to know and probably build a career in the world of nuclear, nuclear energy or medicine, um, am I going to stay in Australia long? Because the worry I'm looking at mm. is where's the future of yeah, the intelligentsia yeah. going to be in terms of sci- scientific breakthrough? Because if I've got one arm behind my back, mm. I'm not going to pack my bags and go elsewhere. You know, one of the most poignant experiences I, I had, which I, I still feel a certain sense of emotion, was visiting MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which has got a research reactor about 40 uh, meters below the pavement, right in the middle of that part of uh, of Boston. Uh, well, it's across the river, so I shouldn't say that. Um, it's in, in Cambridge, uh, on the other side of the river. So apologies to the people of Cambridge. But in Cambridge, Massachusetts, at the MIT, they've got this beautiful research reactor. Hundreds and hundreds of people have been trained in nuclear energy at MIT in that little research reactor. Australian... Engineers have been there. Australian parliamentarians have gone and done the two-day course of being trained into how a nuclear reactor works. When I went on my first trip from Australia to MIT, where I've had a long-term relationship with with some of the people there, and I asked if I could go and pop my head in the door at the at the MIT research reactor, and I met the operator operating it there uh, that day, a young female Australian engineer operating the world's longest serving research reactor that has trained hundreds and hundreds of people to get involved in nuclear energy was the operator that day on the plant. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to her about her career ambitions and she told me about the great idea she had in her head for nuclear to be viable in Australia, but had reached the conclusion that that would never happen. So disappointing. So disappointing. Lost talent. It's a tragedy. So people glibly talk about lives, you know, benefiting from renewables, lives benefiting from better atmosphere and so on. What about the Aussie lives that could have built our nuclear power industry and done a better job of saving us from the destruction of our atmosphere? What about the people who are going to be in our nuclear submarines who won't have civilian jobs when they come out of the back of those nuclear submarines. Who the hell cares? I care. I think it is a grave injustice and a deep embarrassment that we as a country can do this to our own people and glibly say that renewables will do the job for us. It is to me a deep dysfunction in our democracy that we rely on a late night ban in a dirty deal in our federal parliament to maintain this irrational and in fact, frankly, dangerous ban decades later because we refuse to learn and because we refuse to embrace the wisdom of our young people who know better 
whether it's the young woman that I met that day, whether it's Will Shackle just going into year 12 in Queensland, what right do we have to have uh, something that is not based on science? It's not based on engineering. It's based on irrational fear. It is not the spirit of democracy uh, that we want, whether it's you know for the people in the co- communities in the Northern Territory who could benefit from uh, small modular reactors and get off the diesel grid, for our small islands, including Christmas Island, which sometimes they can't land the diesel for days because the seas are too high, whether it's small communities today that are just not economically viable and are hollowing out because they don't have a cheap, reliable source of energy. It's it's time to change. It's time to to make a decision. And I think that decision could be taken quite quickly. Who's in charge of that decision? I believe that there are two layers of politics. Uh, the first one is uh, I think that it's incumbent on the premiers of every state and territory in Australia to have an independent review as to what nuclear power could do, assuming that the bans are lifted at the state and territory level. I believe it's absolutely incumbent on both sides of politics, all sides of politics, because I think the circle sort of comes all the way around, to say maybe it's time to, to, to lift the bans. Uh, and then we'll, if we really believe it's the, the economics and the timing, uh, we will have been telling the truth. But if it isn't the economics and the timing, we won't lie every time we open our mouths. Corporate Australia? Corporate Australia. Are they coming to the party? Like you would, based on what you've said today, Addy, I would have thought if I was a major leader of a, an energy user, this would make a lot of sense to explore and push Parliament somewhat. Are they coming to the party, or are you getting are you getting uh, much feedback or support? To to the extent that people in the corporate world have come forward, uh, they tend to get beaten up. Very true. Okay. I would say if if you near the end of your career and you've got five to seven years to go and your pension's in reasonably good shape, uh, you can have a go. That was pretty much where I was at Ansto. I didn't feel that I had to hold back because I was not looking for a job after Ansto, essentially. Okay. I've met many people who've taken late career decisions to to have a go. Mm-hmm. I think uh, people in 20 years' time will be incredibly thankful that Ziggy raised it at the time that he did because it'll be a memory chip of how long we waited and how much time we wasted. So first of all, I'd like, I'd like to honor all the people who've gone before who've tried to do something about nuclear energy, including those, those people who looked at nuclear power quite seriously in the early days. I'd like to honor the people who, in their heads and in their hearts, are working on it uh, at Ansto and other places around the country uh, now. But most of all, I I'd, don't I'd want to challenge the assumption that glib, continuous repetition of something it is not true uh, is sufficient and necessary to shut down true democratic debate. The legacy of those people who say wind and solar can do it and we don't need, uh, we don't need nuclear, should we not lift the bans and should we be looking back from a future in 20 years' time will not be remembered well by history. And in a way, that's my my sort of harshest thought for them is that history won't remember them well. I don't bear them any ill will. I've seen the irrational fear of apartheid. I've seen it overcome. 
I've seen the irrational fear of nuclear in Australia. I'm seeking to overcome it. So this is a leadership discussion, and we've hit the political agenda, we've hit the social agenda, and we've hit the corporate agenda and government agenda. What is leadership to you? And you've seen it in some pretty challenging times. I, I think that if there was a, a small room discussion in Brisbane, in Sydney, in Adelaide, not sure that you could get it up in Melbourne, uh, but I had, yeah, maybe people um, of indigenous communities across re regional and rural Australia mm -hmm. uh, who have come out of engineering traditions could get together and say, let's at least have a discussion. Let's not have these blokes telling us what we need to think. Mm -hmm. I think if uh, Women in Nuclear, an organization that already exists in Australia, uh, had a le legitimate voice and uh, an authentic voice that was recognized as opposed to just being locked up in a corner and not allowed to speak authoritatively. Okay. I think it's disrespectful to those women, frankly, that they're not often heard. There's a widespread community on all sides of politics who think this ban should be lifted. Who do we go to? Who's, who's ta who is the lead at the moment and in, in this, I, I don't think in this representation? Is there one group or is it splintered? I, I think I think it is splintered and I think it's, it, it's splintered. Well, that serves, that serves government well, doesn't it? I think it, it serves um, to show that… that um, Divide and conquer. Yeah. It's difficult to, to mobilize for nuclear because as soon as you take any money from anybody who owns a nuclear plant, in a sense, you've uh, you've made it more difficult to make the case. That's why I'm not funded by anybody and I choose not to be. Because, you know, if I decided to work with Westinghouse, for example, it would be more difficult because then I couldn't perhaps work with the South Koreans or somebody else. So I think that the amazing thing at the moment is we've got genuine independent voices and the disappointing thing is that the genuine independent voices cannot be heard. That's why, in, in a way, I'm not sure where the secret source is. I'm not where, you know, I don't know where the particular uh, energizing uh, moment is. I, I think it is the family budget. I think it's the cost of electrons coming into uh, the homes of Australians and into the hospitals of Australians, into yep. the emergency rooms, into the sewage pumping works. Yep. Somehow we're already tolerating electricity that's twice as expensive as South Korea's. Hard to be competitive under those circumstances. We're, lo we're losing industries as a result as well. We're already losing industries. Which right? means we're getting unemployment and skills. Yeah. And they don't announce when they're leaving. No, of course not. And then they won't even look to come back, right? Yeah. So in a way, I, I'm not sure whether the uh, structures of employment uh, in industry, they've sometimes kind of said we should have the debate, uh, the people who kind of represent the labor movement. Mm -hmm. I, I think the unions, um, certainly the uh, the unions on the right are pro-nuclear and always have been. Yep. I think the unions on the left probably are becoming pro-nuclear but find it difficult to say that. They've been a movement that's historically anchored the anti-nuclear debate. Yeah, but how long ago was that? Oh, you well, know, it was, we're talking a long time oh, ago. It was, a, it was Cold War days. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it, it so was- when a, do we reevaluate? There was a discussion at the time about, you know, the battle for democracy against the forces of evil. All right. I think we kind of over that one. I think that there is a very legitimate place for the left and for nuclear. In my view, uh, we do need to think about 
the consensus across politics. Unfortunately, because I choose not to act politically, I can only advise people. But I guess I'm a political activist to the extent that I would say I think it's too early to, to do kind of a kind of a tractor revolution and all appear in Can- Canberra. Yeah, okay. But we're not far away from that. How can people help you, Addy? I think the first and most important thing uh, is for those people who are speaking about nuclear to have their voice amplified. So their opportunity uh, to speak truth to power, literally, in this case, um, wind turbine and solar panel power, is very, very important. So if people have got an opportunity to reach out to the various organizations, if they know people who are involved in this debate, invite them around to your probers club, invite them around to have a local discussion with your community. If you're in regional and rural Australia and you're worried about all the wind turbines going across the ridges and hills, that's going to be an activist movement. There I can see uh, uh, the utes and the tractors starting to move towards Canberra. And while I I think that it's um, you have to carefully think through civil disobedience, irrational politics, uh, as we've seen in so many countries where where power has become a factor and where governments make poor choices. Um, I think at a certain time that sort of nonviolent direct action becomes becomes useful. I think that to do damage to anybody would be a mistake, but to inconvenience people is probably no greater than the inconvenience that we, we're actually insisting that future generations have. We're a pretty laid-back bunch down here. It's going to take a little bit to get them to march in Canberra or to march in Sydney or to march in Melbourne, as yeah. you've said. Different to other parts of the world, probably very, no, the French will march at the drop of a hat. Yeah. Um, Banners of footy think, games? Yeah. yeah. You, so do you think we've got it within us to do that? Oh, look, I don't think it's a it's a strong Aussie tradition unless we're hurting people. You can get us up and out if if there's deliberate harm being inflicted on people. So we're hurting our future generation is what you're arguing? I think we are. Uh, I think I think we, we, we're hurting anybody who doesn't have reliable electrons by promising them wind and solar and batteries. In the short term, if I had nothing else, that's what I would do. So this is not a war against solar and, and turbines and batteries. This is about an intergenerational choice for the long-term best future for Australia. We've chosen to have nuclear submarine defense. Mm-hmm. We've chosen not to have nuclear missiles. We have the good f- fortune to sit behind a nuclear missile defense shield of which we are members. So in a sense, we've asked other people to choose nuclear missiles to defend us. Yep. Those are complex choices that, that we live with that safety and that security every day. Why are we choosing for our most disadvantaged communities, for old age homes, for uh, people living in um, straightened circumstances who are retired and so on, who could have, if we were South Korea, for example, an electricity bill that was 50% of what it is now. I think that that kind of civilized direct action and not hurting anybody but you know creating appropriate disruption and street corners and making people think in the way that we already do is is not beyond it i also think that it's really important that the head of any engineering firm uh if 
they ever hear this or somebody who's the chief scientific or technical officer of any organization who hears this says, maybe I'm wrong about these dilute forms of power. Maybe our industry association should get together and do a proper study. Maybe our company should if we're a really big one. BHP Billiton is in the nuclear fuel supply chain. It supplies yellow cake to the world. Maybe they should have a courage not to build a wind farm up at Olympic Dam, but to talk about how they might be able to think of uh, doing appropriate uh, preconditioning of the yellow cake to have higher value added for nuclear fuel. There's no reason why we can't be proactive and go out to the world and try and build some rock plants at nuclear medicine facilities all over the world rather than just keeping it in the basement and not funding the commercialization of the technology globally. We have to, at the end of the day, recognize that most of the useful and important innovations that are valuable to nuclear energy are here already on this continent. The political will and the desire to do it is not, unless it's in the back of a submarine and we bought it from Britain. Is that the first step? That's, that's a good it, step. Could, could it, it be the genesis reduce, of what you're trying to… It, it reduces the cost of building a workforce because it's paid for out of the defense budget. I quite like that. You know, so nuclear-savvy people coming out of nuclear navy is how Admiral Rickover built the first civilian reactors. They took the smart people. But you got the same lead time. So, so we're training those people and they're learning all about nuclear submarines. We should be lifting the ban and developing the people who can uh, be the supply chain participants uh, in nuclear power. They can connect up with uh, people in South Korea. They can connect up with some of the other nuclear build programs around the world. Our good friends in Japan, I'm sure, would want to help us. Uh, they were really heavily involved in our energy industry, companies like Hitachi, for example. There are many, many willing supply chains and actors who've got strong offices here in Sydney and uh, up, in, uh, up in Brisbane. Maybe we can aspire to uh, kind of have a battery-powered Olympic torch where the battery was charged from a, a nuclear source or maybe even a little mini nuclear battery in the Olympic torch in the Brisbane Olympics. Okay. Let's, let's set some goals. Let's get some aspirations. I think let's legitimize the debate. Let's tell stories in the boardrooms, um, uh, in the pubs and clubs uh, of Australia to say maybe we need to get beyond the ban. Uh, maybe we need to actually think about how this could be beautiful for our nation. I like what you say. The only challenge, I guess, being a layperson – is I don't understand the facts. And am I getting the facts? I think we started the conversation you mentioned earlier in the piece, which we said the CSIRO and the analysis that they're providing yeah. um, and what the government may well be providing as well. How does Joe Blow in the pub, to your point, can make a relatively informed decision without scaremongering taking it over? I would say, first of all, you know, there are a lot of good resources. There are these various different clubs and society. There's a lot of good stuff on the, the, the internet and so on. But I would go further than that. I, I would say for those who are currently supporting panels and wind turbines, mm -hmm. they should explain to us the full life cycle cost, just as you have to do for nuclear. Don't tell me that there is a decommissioning provision for turbine blades in regional rural Australia. 
Tell me which authority, not the, not the bank, not the bucket of money in the bank, which authority should that turbine company fail or should the operator fail or should there be a problem at the fence and it all turns to custard? Which federal authority and which state or territory authority is taking responsibility for the decommissioning of those wind turbines, the safe decommissioning uh, of those blades and the final disposal or reprocessing of the blades of those wind turbines? Who is going to look after every single piece of that uh, tower? Who is going to take the 1,500 to 2,500 tonnes of concrete out of the ground? Who is going to dig up the cable under the ground which is disrupting the burrowing animals that live along those ridges and to take up those cables when those wind turbines are no longer there and to reprocess those very high-valuable DC cables uh, that link up all of those wind turbines. Who's going to decommission the uh, digital inverters at the fence and make sure that those are safely disposed of? You see, it's it's really important that we have a value system that is life cycle based for all our sources of energy. We are going to dis- decommission the coal plants. Yep. Provision is made. Some provision is made for decommissioning those coal plants. I have been thinking, uh, and I think it's it's important that for the solar panels on my roof, I should be making sure that there is a decommissioning provision in the Patterson family budget, that when those um, uh, panels come to the end of their life, if I'm still living in that house and I decide not to have solar panels because I now have nuclear power and electrons are cheap, that I can make sure that I safely take those solar panels off the roof and give them to a responsible final authority to dispose of them and make sure that they're reprocessed. That's sort of my personal moral hazard. Would I do that? I'm already thinking about it. Can uh, I? Addy, just on that, what is the life cycle of the wind turbines you're talking about? It's so, not that long, is it? So the wind, wind turbines at the moment have a notional 20 to 25-year life cycle. 25 years? Notional. What is that? Well, uh, maybe. That, that means that some make it. The offshore sure ones globally... I don't know of a wind farm in its first 15 years of operation that is getting to the 15 years that is the economic break-even of the wind turbine offshore farm, okay? I know about many, many uh, wind farms in the Midwest of the United States that are not even going to come close to the operating lifetime of those those wind farms. The rate of fires in wind turbine facilities around the world is quite embarrassing. The panels, uh, these kind of the generation we currently got, are quite well fabricated. I'm not sure whether we've got an independent authority in Australia that evaluates their life cycle or does accelerated testing on them to see how they degrade. So you can pretend to be sunlight for 24 hours a day and do accelerated testing on on solar panels. They do this in South Korea, for example. Um, to tell us, you know, are we living in a fool's paradise or will they keep going forever? We do know that they tend to tail off at their end of their life and they, they do degrade. So my view is that all energy sources that have a life cycle should have full decommissioning provision built into their cost. And then the job of governments is to make sure that that decommissioning pathway exists in engineering and science reality and has got well-funded actors who are protected by legislation from things like bankruptcy and so on, uh, bad behavior. You can go bankrupt, but somebody comes in and carries on. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and in the same way that we we run the tips up at uh, up at Lucas Heights, uh, which uh, run the little uh, gas generator across the road from the Opal reactor from the methane gas that comes out of the historical tips. Very few people know that power is produced at Lucas Heights, but from the gas that comes from the tip. It's against the law to make electrons in the Opal reactor. What's the future of batteries? Well, I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, batteries in all of the applications that they currently work in. Are you? Yep. In these uh, little cameras, um, in our watches. Batteries are just absolutely wonderful. So you Electronic could, vehicles? Uh, well, th- that's a little bit different because the energy density, once, once you're in electric vehicles, right, uh, the battery in an electric vehicle, typical battery in, in the first generation Teslas, 800 kilograms. Same weight as an old mini miner, if you remember those. Yeah. It's a big battery. I don't think they've worked enough on the closing that loop in that life cycle and reprocessing lithium NMC. They're making some progress now, the uh, nickel, um, uh, manganese, cobalt uh, batteries. They, they're starting to, to get that one. Lithium ion phosphate batteries, not so sure. But really, you're talking about a big chemistry experience to put all those batteries in a big bucket and take it all out again. Yep. And I've got a chart and I've got to use one at my home as well, don't I? Yep. Yep. All of, all of the above. So you so you got to have <laughs> – it gets quite expensive. You've got to have a battery on the wall at home, which weighs as much as your family. You've got to have a battery in your vehicle, which weighs more than your family. You've got to save enough solar panels on your roof to charge the battery on your wall and the battery in your vehicle. And then you've got to have a charging station if you have any drive of longer than 40 kilometers to work to charge it when you get to work and bring it back. And if it's an overcast day and you manage to get home and it's been an overcast day at home and your battery at home's not full, you're in trouble. The law of unintended consequences. Yep. So... These are kind of the thought experiments we should be thinking about. You know, if I was if if I was to buy a battery electric vehicle, mm. I would I would buy a, a plug-in hybrid. Okay. Because if I could find some cheap free electron somewhere, I could plug it in. But if the battery wasn't big enough to take me all the way home, I could run I could run the the engine. In fact, I had such a vehicle when I, Ansto used to give me a, a company car, and I had uh, and I had Toyota hybrids um, and some of the other brands as well. And in the, I'm not going to say which brand it is because I shouldn't really do that. But a brand of hybrid, I used to uh, have a plug-in connection at Ansto, which would take solar panels off the roof of the little car park, and would charge the car during the day. I would drive it back to my house uh, at night and get back to Ansto just on the battery. And I'd been driving that vehicle for, I think, about five months and a little red light came up on my dashboard. It said, please use some of your petrol. <laughs> you know what to get for the car. To, because otherwise it's getting a little bit too old. Yeah. So I've, I've lived in electric vehicle land uh, happily and found that it could work. But I had the great benefit that the organization was prepared to allow us to do that experiment. Uh, we did it in good faith to, to see what was possible. 
and we demonstrated that for the city cycle, uh, it is plausible to have an electric vehicle fleet until something goes wrong. Any other forms of energy we should be mindful? You haven't mentioned much. Is it development of hydrogen? Yeah. On its way, going to work on or, or, or? Uh, hydrogen is an interesting one because hydrogen has been developed uh, by the Germans since about 1886, and over the years, including the Hindenburg disaster, oh, which yeah, everybody right. remembers, that was a that was a hydrogen deflagration. Yeah. Not a lot of people know this, but the Germans continue to work on hydrogen and blew up a number of other aircraft, which we don't have the stories about and so on. Um, the Atlas rocket program that took us to the moon was based on hydrogen propulsion of rockets. Uh, so those were all hydrogen rockets. Um, I had the privilege of having uh, a one-on-one -on -one lunch with Elon Musk a number of years ago. Yep. And I asked him, because we were talking about space, it was actually in a space conference that we met, and he was in the early stage of establishing SpaceX. And I said to him, what's your vision for SpaceX? And he said that it would be to take SpaceX away from hydrogen-based fuel and to not use hydrogen as the fuel because it's too dangerous. And so the SpaceX rockets are designed on the principle that there is no hydrogen in those rockets. Uh, they are fired with liquid fuels. And you will notice also that Elon Musk did something else, which is really brave. He was prepared to see rockets that were not had any people on the top of them explode on takeoff. So he perfected the engines so that he reduced the risk of that ever happening when you had humans in the top of the rocket. Yeah. He shared all of that with me in that discussion before he built SpaceX. And he had the great courage, I think, to transform space travel. And it was based on what he saw the Russians doing. Because you will remember the old Saturn rockets going, standing up all the way there. Yep. The reason they had to stand up was if they were on their side, the hydrogen fuel tanks would be crushed under their own weight. It was just a big hydrogen fuel tank in a very thin-skinned rocket. The Russian rockets, when they went to launch them, would all be lying on a flatbed truck and they would get it to the launch pan and make it stand up much cheaper, liquid fuels. And so by observation, we don't have to go to space with hydrogen. Nobody needs hydrogen. Hydrogen is 14 parts per billion in the atmosphere of the – how much is 14 parts per billion? If you had soccer balls – right around the circumference of the equator, and you looked for the hydrogen, there would be one hydrogen atom, one hydrogen soccer ball for all of those. We did not evolve with hydrogen. There are a few vents deep in the Pacific Ocean where some critters have learned to live with hydrogen that comes out of those little vents. Everywhere else that I know of in the planet, no life co-evolved with hydrogen. There is a reason that we didn't co-evolve with hydrogen, is that in a range from about 8% to 94% hydrogen in the atmosphere, you light a flame and it will combust. Yep. It's called deflagration. That flame propagates below the speed of sound. Everybody who wants to can look at a hydrogen explosion. The explosion that damaged the Fukushima reactors, which we've all seen, 
we've all watched that flame propagate. That wasn't nuclear material. That was hydrogen. That hydrogen was formed when the reactor cores got too hot, hot and above the level of the water, it reacted with the atmosphere to create hydrogen and oxygen. That got out of those reactors into the atmosphere. At a certain point, a spark uh, entered that cloud of hydrogen. The Fukushima reactor explosion was not a nuclear explosion. It was a hydrogen explosion. So when people say, I don't want nuclear because of Fukushima, the only lesson you might have learned is that you don't want hydrogen because of Fukushima. You might want safe, modern nuclear because Fukushima can never happen to a modern nuclear reactor. But hydrogen is always dangerous, whether it's made as a result of a, an accident in a conventional um, water reactor, or whether you think that you'll go and buy a cylinder to replace your carbon dioxide cylinder to put in your drinks. Hydrogen will always be too dangerous to be near humans and certainly never in a home with children. Being a, a senior leader within the scientific world, progress for women mm. in Australia, in that area, is it, is it improving? I think there have been a number of initiatives that have improved it. Um, I've been associated with one of them, Superstars for STEM. It's uh, run by the Australian Technological and, and Sciences Academy, ATSI. Those programs, superstars of STEM and so on, are important symbolic acts. I think the phrase we use is you can't be what you can't see. And so when we see women achieving in engineering, of course, Marie Curie, who I've just mentioned, became something that she hadn't seen. But I think it is helpful to have role models and people who've been through that, like my mum was to me, and that was one of the reasons I became passionate about science at school, for example. I think it's important to have those, those symbols. I think it's even more important that science in the form of physics, chemistry, and a reasonable level of mathematics is taught an accessible way to nearly everybody who wants to do it in schools to year 12. And that we create the platform for that to be as easy to be to choose as the classics, the humanities, and the other subjects that are available. This has been done all over the world. We don't do it well yet, and because we've got a fragmented education system that is at the state and territory level, we've got lots of great people who try to help with that, and I've worked with those communities very intensively. I think the transformation of education to make, at a minimum, genuine equality of opportunity for men and women and um, anybody who wants to come and kind of join in that game is is a fundamental tenet of, of modern democracies. I just want to honour the work that the good people do in, in Canberra to try to, to drive this agenda. Uh, there are a lot of programs. I'm very involved in some of those programs historically, but it is not nearly enough because we need people in university courses to be given the opportunity to go in schools and talk about what they're learning in university courses. If you can't learn to be a nuclear engineer in Australia, how can you say anything about nuclear power? And so the ban creates a, a different sort of asymmetry in our society 
is people who aspire to have the best always-on reliable energy available in our society who really, really want to do something about that at a research level or an engineering level or a transformational nuclear program level will have to leave Australia to do that. It's kind of the opposite of, of the boats arriving with convicts. It's putting people on boats so that they can't be here because we banned what they can be at a deep and fundamental level. I think men and women need a fair go at science, engineering, and technology through the school system. But the magnet of employment in low-carbon energy, in a nuclear energy future for Australia, will not create a couple of jobs kind of doing design work for solar panels on a roof, but would create fundamental, high-quality, lifetime jobs in a sustainable industry which we can then take into developing countries in Asia. We can take it into the African continent. We can show the power of democratic action and low-cost, low-carbon electricity to be transformational in societies. We are losing that opportunity and denying to women and men who could be actors in that space the privilege and the potential and the power to do that. Addy, I've got to ask you this question. If you were to look back at that young man and you're going to give him some advice all these years later, mm. what would you say? I'd say that deep inside me, honour my mum. She told me the truth. There was no monster under the bed. Not only did she tell me the truth about there being no monster on the bed, she took away from me the crazy contraption I was using to save myself that in fact injured me. So at the level of society, I would say, study the history of the remarkable women in nuclear, Marie Curie, uh, women in Canada who I, I won't worry you with their names now, Marie Curie's daughter. Look at what she did by challenging the norms of her society Imagine being uh, in that pre-First World One society that is not that different from ours. Uh, it was sort of pre-modern, post-modernism. It was a heady time. All things were possible. It turned into the disaster of the First World War, but Marie Curie, who then uh, took X-ray machines that she designed and built herself and went to the front to fight in that war, Enormous courage, enormous courage. I would say that for this generation of men and women, not to honor the tradition of Marie Curie because we are honoring the tradition of anti-nuclear Germany, do dishonor to all people who fight for freedom. On that, it's been an absolute pleasure today, Eddie. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to No Limitations. Mm -hmm.